Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. With unity, we can do great things, important things. We can right wrongs. We can put people to work in good jobs. We can teach our children in safe schools. We can overcome the deadly virus. We can reward work and rebuild the middle class and make health care secure for all. We can deliver racial justice and we can make America once again the leading force for good in the world. That was President Joe Biden a year ago uh, or thereabouts at the Capitol, surrounded by chain link and barbed wire uh, fencing, telling the country that things would be better in a year. Uh, he was sitting there with an approval rating in the uh, 60s and uh, ain't that way anymore. Only a year ago, there he was, a, a young spry man with a dream <laughs> to transform post-Trump America. And I guess we're going to review some of the speed bumps. I'll be charitable. He's hit along the way and maybe talk a little bit about how to finally get a restart uh, before they fit him for a Jimmy Carter cardigan. And to help us do that, we have with us the most stained of ink-stained wretches, oh, yes. drenched in ink, the poison pen, the national political reporter for the New York Times, offer of this will not pass. A look at the last two years. God help us in American politics coming to your bookstore soon. Buy, steal, borrow one. It's must read. Who is is it? Who is it? The one, the only, the Ayatollah of political spinola. Mr. Jonathan Martin is joining us today. Holy hey, Jonathan. I haven't heard. A, I haven't seen a wine up like that since Satchel Page. <laughs> Boom. Jmart. Eighty-two-year-old listeners are all chuckling. Not since Stu Spencer dined alone has there been such a Republican consultant bit of puffery. <laughs> there we go. Pure puffery, but well earned. An old friend. Get a both. room, you guys. We got a show to do here. All right. So I'll throw a first question out to you guys. Is Biden going to reset, or is he on his way to Jimmy Carterville? What do we think will happen? Here? Oh, it's so early. I mean, he, <laughs> he hasn't even he hasn't even been in office a year. I mean, obviously that's coming up soon here, but as we tape this, he's not even been in office a year. Uh, look, I think there's still a lot uh, of, of presidency here to go. If there's anything that we know about the president conditions of uh, American politics is that there, there are no constants. It's, uh, it's constantly changing. And to uh, sort of make any predictions about the future is, is folly. Uh, that said, that um, never stops us, but go ahead. No, exactly. <laughs> We're right? all about uh, folly here. A lot of folly. Look, I, I, I think it's been obviously a, a really tough last few months. And what's I think frustrating for Democrats, and I was talking to somebody yesterday about this is, there's just not a lot that they can do about the biggest challenge they face, which is the long-term effects of COVID, both in terms of public health and the economy, both. Guys, you've both worked for a lot of politicians and candidates over the years. Is there anything more frustrating than not being able to control the biggest no. challenge you have? Yeah, I know I can speak to this because I was in the White House during one of those periods back in 2009 and 2010, and uh, you are at the mercy of events. And even as you make progress, you can't really claim it because people don't feel it. And until they feel it, uh, if you are too insistent on the progress that you've made, uh, they think that you're completely out of touch with what's going on uh, in their lives. Just, uh, Murphy, to your 
uh, original question and on Jmart's point. I do remember a piece that was written in the New York Times Sunday Magazine uh, exactly one year before the 2012 election, and the headline, and this was by the the uh, the, the exalted Nate Silver. The headline was, "Is Obama toast?" And uh, he was given a 40 percent chance of of winning re-election, which if Nate were here, he'd argue, well, 40 percent is 40 percent. And he hit on the 40 percent. But, yeah, it's 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 stupid to be in the prediction business. It's also stupid to say anything other than Biden's in a tough spot right now. Yeah, that's where I'll go. The prediction question was kind of for fun. But the reality is he is stuck. And I agree. We have learned that covid kills presidents. Because you get blamed for all the pain, you get no credit for any forward motion, and people are cynical. And if you try, as Biden did, the, hey, July 4th, it's all going to be great, you know, you, you, you just get your, your head handed to you because biology doesn't follow the calendar of political spin. That said, it strikes me there are a lot of, a lot of errors here. Um, Biden was not elected as the Bernie guy, yet I think he's let his left define him. I think he's looking weak and passive. And they have this obsession with picking fights over big, big legislation they don't have the votes to pass. And what what I'm obsessed with is will he reset? Will he try a different path or just keep hammering away, take his midterm losses and, you know, hope for luck? Yeah, I mean, I do think, look, I think there's a combination of of problems here. Um he is at the mercy of events. The virus is de- de- defining things uh, in a way that it's very hard for him to change. Uh, the economy is sort of linked to that. Uh, but he does have, you know, I, Biden's habit is to is to be the uber optimist, to tell people we're about to turn the corner, uh, and uh, also to set uh, goals for himself here that he uh, and that he couldn't meet. And the impact of that, when you say we're going to pass this or we're going to do that and you can't get them done, right? And he, uh, then you look weak. Yeah. And ultimately, weakness is the message that his opponents have been running against him since he started running for president. And he's proving it true. That's a problem. They're a victim of, of expectation setting. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a part of the same thing. Expectations that they set. I mean, yes, I think, yes. I, I think what happened in 2020 one and we'll have a lot more of this in our forthcoming book from simon and schuster this will not pass available at your local bookseller or on amazon.com we'll do that a couple more times before you go Uh, coming out may 3rd you can pre-order it now on amazon uh this will not pass with alex burns my great co-author this promo will not pass (laughs) yeah no no exactly what's the page count (laughs) are we in it that's the key thing because we need to add a chapter quickly or we're going to edit this plug we still got some time left, guys. Um, All right, there you go. So, look, I think um, in 2021, one big thing happened early, and that is they passed that that COVID bill in March, and they passed it basically as proposed. You guys know this. There's never a bill that passes as proposed without being tinkered with or watered down or massaged, mm-hmm. um, especially a big ticket piece of legislation like that right at the start of a presidency. I mean, even the the stimulus acts that you guys passed early on in, in 2009, obviously was, was shaved down and, and tweaked. This thing passed um, both chambers and Biden signed it. I think that emboldened them. And it made them think, yeah, we only got 50 senators and yeah, our House majority is, you know, basically less than a starting basketball team. But 
we can get big stuff done. And I think that set them on a course to try to go big on uh, both Build Back Better and also on a robust voting and elections bill when they just didn't have the capacity there. And I think in some ways that early success um, made them a little bit more confident, bordering on cocky as to what they could actually get done. With the well, we here. read all that leaking coming out of them and their allies about, well, make room on Mount Rushmore. There's another FDR in town. And, you know, it just seemed to me to be both on an expectations basis and just vote counting, not what the election was about. They were swinging so far. People didn't vote for a big lefty revolution. They voted for normalcy. Someone should have told them FDR isn't even on Mount Rushmore. But, yeah, they... (laughs) Metaphor police. All right, I'm Chaston. (laughs) I think that they were chasing history. I do think they were chasing history. And, look, there are a lot of things that you and I would disagree about, Mike, perhaps that was in the Build Back Better bill that I think would be uh, of huge importance uh, and value. But the difficulty of getting it done came smack in the face of Biden's repeated confidence that his mastery as a legislative veteran uh, could produce results. And the other thing that it did was it it seemed that they were so focused on chasing this that they were sort of not in touch with the day-to-day issues that were right in front of people, that this was a distraction, that they were chasing history instead of chasing COVID, instead of chasing uh, instead of chasing uh, inflation. In other words, uh, they were chasing history, but instead history caught them uh, because of COVID, uh, external events. I totally agree with this analogy, and they were late to react. And then, again, I, I, I'm I, waiting for the change-up because the presidential microphone is so powerful, you get to do that. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't seen it, and I'm wondering what, because the Build Back Better thing. But, 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 but to J-Mart's point, that, that, that microphone can be uh, a detriment too if you use it to set expectations that you way too high make. yeah yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally yeah. agree i'm just waiting for what's next because i think the path they're on now is for reasons that aren't their fault but some that are their fault uh they're going to lose the house and they have a damn good chance even with some wackadoodle republican potential candidates of losing the senate and then i think the party's yeah. going to eat them so they 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 need to figure out a plan to not have that happen because they're they're kind of slouching in that direction right now, and that's a loser strategy. I mean, elections have the effect of focusing the mind. Uh, I, I can recall late October of last year talking to friends about this. We all kind of knew what was going to happen, which was the House was not going to pass infrastructure until and unless McAuliffe lost in Virginia. Uh, and sure enough, you know, uh, Terry became the martyr for uh, a massive public works bill. Um, uh, that was his sacrifice. Uh in all seriousness, he lost on Tuesday. The bill passed the House Friday night, and Biden yeah. signed into law uh, soon after. And I, Mike, to your point, I think that's what it probably takes for a course correction. Is you know a, a real thumping, uh, t- to borrow the language of a of a previous president um, in the fall to get any kind of a real course correction. Yeah, you can always head off the thumping when you see it coming, though. That's the thing that's driving me. Listen, crazy. a course correction, but Jmart isn't a course correction here a little late if it happens after the fall, uh, given the fact that, I mean, what, what, would the, what will the next two years be like 
if uh, you know Kevin McCarthy, who is Charlie McCarthy to Donald Trump, becomes Speaker of the House, uh, what what are the next two years going to be like for the Biden administration? I think that's a fair point in terms of the actual legislative output, David. But I'm talking more about Biden's posture and his his sort of events, his appeal, the nature of his rhetoric, how he tries to lead. If he does not have Democratic majorities and passing big ticket legislation isn't an option, and he's been chastened by a real midterm setback, I think you could see an adjustment to that political reality. And by the way, that's not totally out of the realm given Biden. He's not a super ideological figure. He's never been one. He's much more willing to accommodate the politics of the moment, as, as both of you guys know. So I think that, that that's totally plausible, that, that Biden himself could offer a different kind of presentation. First of all, I think that, that I, I don't think they can wait until November. I think they have to start changing up uh, now in order to reduce the margins in November. Uh, if they no. if they don't, I think it could be pretty it could be pretty severe. Uh, but uh, in a sense, you know, having the thinnest of majorities, you know, I remember riding with Obama in 2000 and 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 eight toward the end of the election, we we were pulling up to an event where there are a hundred thousand people waiting, and uh, I remember him turning to me and saying, "You know, we're never going to be able to meet all their expectations." Uh, and he saw the 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 sort of the, the 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 flip side of his success and the flip side of the majorities that they were likely to win was going to be, um, you know, a, a lot of wrangling and 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 blowback and that we experienced. I mean, Biden had the slightest of majorities. And I mean, it's, it's almost, an, you know, he may be liberated in some ways uh, by losing them. I, I mean, I don't think he, I wouldn't wish that on because he's also going to get a, a parade of, uh, of uh, subpoenas and obstruction and it's going to be miserable, a miserable right. slog, but he will be relieved of this. Hey, we've got the majorities. Why don't we do everything that we wanted to do? I think his situation is a lot more simple than people do. They can, I mean, first of all, I'm from the, you know, Trump hating conservative world. So what we all think is that the Democratic Party now is so important, it cannot be left up to the Democrats. What Biden needs to do is save the Senate. Now, how do you save the Senate? You move Biden's favorable up eight points because we have some dog candidates on the Republican side. The Senate could get more competitive. Biden could get out of the ditch. So you take a Harry Truman poll. And you get out there on some wedge issues. You use the Senate as a platform to go run against the do-nothing Republicans instead of suffering one defeat after the other. It's not a year about legislation anymore. He doesn't have the votes. That is a failure factory. But he can go on the offense against his stuff if he could break down some of his overambitious stuff into pieces people understand. So I think it's about that simple. If he can put eight or nine points on as favorable between now and Labor Day, they're in the hunt in the Senate. If he can't, they're going to crush him. I think it's totally plausible that if they're working with this latest bipartisan Senate gang uh, on elections, right. uh, that, that they can find 10 Republican votes to get some kind of an elections bill. It's not going to be what Democrats wanted on voting, but they can get something done that Biden can pass uh, if Biden and Schumer will accept a quarter of a loaf. And I also think 
We should explain that, J. Mart, what's going on, because some of our readers are out in the real world yeah, may not sure. have time to follow it. But this is about the Electoral Reform Act, which is so important, and a few smaller things that could happen. There's now a bipartisan group of senators meeting about it. Yeah. Here's the easy way to understand it is where the compromise could come in the Senate is on everything that takes place after the, after election. the election. Yeah. And what right. probably gets left on the cutting room floor is everything before the election, which is gerrymandering, which is, um, you know, voter ID, uh, which sort of the rules and regs of, of, of voting. What I think there, there's common ground uh, for is what happens after the election. And that's what this group led by Susan Collins of Maine, working with uh, notable liberal favorites, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, uh, <laughs> are, are, are now trying and Republican to favorite Mitt Romney, you know, his usual suspects. If that happens, and then you get some kind of a pared down, build back better. Yeah, uh, which I think you can. Right, which is Clinton's advice, by the way. Bill Clinton came out and said, yeah, break yeah. it up and, you know, win it. Uh, I think Biden's numbers can improve. I just have to make yeah, a real uh, a real fast point on, on Biden himself, though, because people forget this because of COVID, which was dominating our lives uh, in the spring of 2020. But we uh, talk about this in our book, and that's the only the second to last time I'm going to plug it in this podcast. Yeah, which book is that? Yeah, exactly. Uh, this will not pass coming out May 3rd. But this is this is a hacks on taps drinking game. Every time J Mart <laughs> plugs his book, have another beer. Go ahead. So, you know, Biden <laughs> did the opposite of, of the old Dick Nixon admonition, which is you run to the right in the primary into the middle in the mm-hmm. general. You know, every Democrat running for president runs to the left in the primary in the middle of the general. Like Biden upset that uh, tradition in ways that weren't really noticed at the time because COVID. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. And how's it working but for him? Ran in the primary as, as basically somebody who was going to be a conciliatory, unifying figure who was going to end the the these sort of menacing Trump times and restore the soul of America. It was right. not until he got the nomination in March of 20 and trying to put together the coalition of his own party. Yeah, he wanted to consolidate his base. That he starts coming out for a much more robust progressive agenda. Exactly. My point being that I think Biden is fairly flexible on this stuff if you just look at how he ran his campaign, you know? Well, hopefully he learned his lesson. Okay, let's take a break right here for a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. You know, Murphy, every day, tens of thousands of trees are cut down to make single-use paper products that are flushed or thrown into our overflowing landfills. Our forests currently remove around one-quarter of the carbon humans put into the atmosphere, making them a crucial part of the fight against climate change, which I know you care a lot about, as I do. I do. do. I do. So Real Paper is here to help that fight. Real Paper is a sustainably-made product that helps reduce deforestation and single-use plastic waste. You know, all real paper is special because all of their products are 100% plastic-free. You know, they're never choke a dolphin. And made without virgin tree fibers, meaning no new trees are cut down to make their toilet paper or paper towels. Real developed a premium, sustainable alternative so you don't have to sacrifice quality. And X, I know when it comes to toilet paper, you're all about quality to help the planet. Plus, making this small change can have a big impact. So far, yeah. real paper has eliminated over 250,000 pieces of single-use plastics. Plus, each purchase of real helps fund access to clean sanitation all around the world. 
Real Paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door in 100% recyclable, plastic-free packaging. If you head to realpaper.com hacks and sign up for a subscription using our code HACKS at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order. That's real paper, R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash hacks or enter promo code hacks to get 30% off your first order. Real paper is toilet paper and paper towels that change lives. Use real paper. And you'll be on a roll. <laughs> oh. A couple of things. Uh, one is, Mike, you said two things. You said uh, he can't get anything done uh, and he should move on. And then you said he should break the bill down, which I agree with and, and pass it. I think I don't think that the public has I don't think his numbers are rooted in whether he did or didn't pass the Build Back Better Act, whether he did or didn't pass voting uh, rights. I think those things have become emblematic of failure and and yeah, yeah, exactly. and, and, and fecklessness. And so wins are important in that right. regard. But ultimately, uh, you know, the most important thing that's going to move his numbers up is if things improve. I mean, I don't think if you have inflation at a 40 year high come summer, if you have people still struggling with the virus in the summer, that even passage of those bills is going to change the basic dynamic. He no, should no, do I, them, and then he should also, I think, look like a guy who's thinking every day about how to deal with those things and who's taking measures, uh, large and small, about it. And I think identifying with the, the sense that people have. You don't want to do a Jimmy Carter malaise thing, but you do want to say, hey, we've been through hell, and uh, we're fighting our way through it. And you know what? Biden is actually well-positioned for that because there's a guy who's actually been through hell. And, uh, you know, he ought to use that to his advantage. We see it the same. He needs wins because it's the narrative of old, weak sidelines being pushed around by left-wingers in the House that's killing him. Second, I agree. If COVID goes away, the supply chain will wake up. Some of the pricing pressure will go away. Uh, you know, big economic debate, is the inflation transitory based on things like that? Or is it based on the insane spending? Uh, that both parties, frankly, have done. But the Dems, of course, are always the best at it. We don't know. But if he catches some luck for a change on a COVID decline, which could lower inflation and uh, have the economy jump, and he's seen as a winner, like like on this bipartisan electoral reform thing, he ought to jump in front and lead the parade. You know, his guys will tell him, oh, no, you're going to make Mitch McConnell look good. Who cares? Nobody cares about that. He's the president. I think he has to get through the next few days. And, you know, the whole this has been a rough week in part because I thought his speech in Georgia was um, ill-advised or at least the language was ill-advised. He set up the stakes here. They're going to lose this vote. But you can see he's now moving and shifting to the administration of the election, the counting of votes. Uh, and you can see a bridge being built to the uh, Electoral Count Act of of, of, uh, of eighteen eighty seven. And we should the, quickly as, explain that, just because again, eighteen eighty seven, it's a pre Zeppelin era uh, uh, way that we count the electoral votes. And you know, you toss whale bones in the air. It's incredibly antiquated. It is subject to potential fraud if we really get into crazy town. So fixing that is a huge save democracy thing. And if Biden's smart, as you're saying, David. 
he might be able to get in front and get that deal done on a bipartisan basis. And then, by the way, he's done the two biggest bipartisan successes yeah. in the last two decades. He will. There will be a lot of howling and disappointment. Look, we passed the Affordable Care Act and got beaten up by the left for not having a uh, a public option in there. And it was called, you know, a failure, tepid and so on. He'll get some of that, but it's still it's still better. But let me ask you guys something else. One of the problems why presidents almost always lose seats in a midterm election is that uh, it, it tends to get treated and too often presidents treat it themselves like a report card day for them, that it is a straight up or down referendum. And this is, of course, what Republicans want. This is why Mitch McConnell says we're not going to have an agenda in this election. They don't want an agenda. Right. They want the whole election to be about uh, Biden. I don't think Democrats- but that, that is the playbook of both parties going back to 82 against Reagan. I mean, it's very rarely successful. It was successful in, in 2002 because of the uh, 9-11 attack and people rallied around Bush. And it was it was successful in 98, in part because Republicans overplayed their hand on impeachment against Clinton. Well, here's what I want to propose to you guys. And, and I want to see what you think. Like, you've got this crazy ass house. I mean, I've got p- tons of tape I won't play uh, of uh of uh, all, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Gosar, who uh, Kevin McCarthy has promised to reinstate if uh, they get elected. You've got McCarthy promising vengeance against Democratic members of the House. And then you've got, you know, Trump and your your colleague Jeremy Peters wrote a good piece over the weekend from Trump's rally in Arizona, yeah. J. Mart. Uh, basically, it was a parade of crazy uh, up there. And and Trump is going to he is re-entering this discussion now. He's going to be front and center. Shouldn't Democrats? I mean, it may not be successful, but shouldn't Democrats and perhaps Biden to some degree later in the year paint a picture of what that Republican House is going to look like and ask people if you're if you're looking for calm, if you're looking for stability, do you want to turn that place over to those guys? I mean, shouldn't that be part of the equation? No. Yeah, make it more of a <laughs> referendum. I'm sorry, more of a choice than a referendum. Yes. Yeah, that's what I think. Murphy says no. Let J. Mart since he seems yeah, to be. Yeah, then I'll I'll come in as since a he seems here. since he seems more receptive to my theory. Let's let him talk. <laughs> yeah, go for it. A part of what delighted Democrats about that speech Biden gave on January 6th in the, the Capitol was because it was for the first time he really took it to Trump and set up um, the, the contrast between himself and. Uh, you know, what he would call the battle days. And I think you've got to remind uh, people um, of, if you're Democrats, about, you know, uh, what the alternative is. Biden loves to cite this this famous quote from the former mayor of Boston, Kevin White, which is, right. don't compare yes. me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. Exactly. Biden does not do that terribly often because it, I think in part because Biden is a decent guy who does not like taking out a chainsaw uh, and running after Republicans. One of the most telling parts of last week, guys, uh, you know, besides um, that that Georgia speech in which you know he got he got stiffed by Stacey Abrams and a number of voting rights activists was what well, I think it undermined by his own speechwriters. What happened the next day, and I think this didn't get the attention. But, you know, Biden gives a really tough speech in Atlanta. And the next day he comes into the Capitol and tries to track down Mitch McConnell to basically say, hey, man, no, no hard feelings. That's so classic Biden. Right. It, 
it tells you everything about what, why Biden's a decent guy and why people tend to like him and give him um, give him a shot. But it also tells you why, as a political actor, Biden tends to undermine his own rhetoric and his own appeals because he's just not able to sustain a real you know, offensive tone because he doesn't want to go after these guys that hard. He just he, or he can't, you know. On the Georgia speech. Uh, like I thought the January 6th speech was very, very good and very strong. And it's important for Biden to be strong and look strong. And I think he was strong in the right, right way because he was standing up for, uh, for you know, the basic functioning and institutions of our democracy. I think he went down in, uh, you know, January, uh, and I know we'll get letters and, and angry tweets about this, but uh, look, I'm, I think that uh, the civil rights uh, in, infringements, the the uh, voter suppression aspects of some of these laws that are being passed on the basis of a lie are deeply offensive to democratic values. But there are things that are being done that are, in, you know, absolutely perilous to the democratic experiment about how votes are counted and so on. And instead of focusing on those, he made it a civil rights speech. Uh, and he basically called everybody who opposed voting reform uh you know, George Wallace and Bull Connor, and it just landed badly. And uh, so uh, I think you, so this is a segue to you, Murph. The, if they, if they, uh, if he makes a bridge to the crazy anti-democratic wing of the Republican Party and speaks to reason and reasonable people who, who don't want the next two years to be, you know, chaos and vengeance and and a prelude to trump or or at least a a a, a trump-like experience uh, i think there's value in that but you don't think so huh well i like the strategy always of making it a choice not a a complaint box uh in an election my problem with it and look i agree on the georgia speech it was stupid overkill i like feisty biden i like the january 6th speech i like the second speech after georgia where he got back to meat and potato stuff. And that, that that's my point about why I don't think it works. The problem is, and remember, folks, and you can send every angry email to Jonathan Martin at the New York Times. Who's the author of the upcoming book, This Will Not Pass, with Alex Burns. It Coming comes out, out in on, May. Yes, exactly. Go ahead. Um, you can send me as many emails as you want, as long as they include a screenshot of your pre-order from Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, gentlemen, we will be back in a minute, but we have to pay a few bills. You know, X, we're pretty tough on old Putin on this podcast. We're friends of the Ukraine. And so I'm starting to worry about my Internet security. What should I do? Well, I'll tell you what you do. Get ExpressVPN. You know, every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, and you travel a lot, I know basically any network that's not your own, your online data is not secured. Any Uh-oh. hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data passwords, financial details, you name it. So wait a minute. I'm sitting at the coffee cafe and I'm working on one of my great scripts on Wi-Fi and that weird looking guy in the corner who keeps staring at me typing fast on the laptop could be getting into my data? Not if you have ExpressVPN because ExpressVPN creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that hackers, that guy in the cafe, he can't steal your data. And I've got good data. Hackers can make some serious cash selling personal information on the dark web, especially yours. (laughs) But ExpressVPN has made it easier than ever to keep your information safe. 
Dark Web is my nickname. But you're right. You know, I don't know if it was an Internet hacker, but sure enough, my credit card got ripped off about nine months ago. And, you know, I had to change it all. And I'm on Wi-Fi all the time. I could use that secure encrypted tunnel. So all I've got to do to use ExpressVPN is fire up the app, click one button, and you're instantly protected from that interception. And it also, I love this, it works on all your devices, laptops, phones, tablets. So no matter what you're doing, where you're going, and what you're using, you can stay secure on the go. Sorry about what I charged on your card, by the way. It was you! Secure your online data today at expressvpn.com slash hacks on tap and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash hacks on tap. expressvpn.com slash Hacks on tap. Check it out. Okay, so why am I saying no? Because, and forgive me, but we're political hacks, and we're talking about a world where perception is reality. Democratic voters like being told they're morally superior to Republican voters, who we all know are shoeless rubes in Alabama driven by hate and guns and fried food. So having a big orgy about what terrible people the House Republicans are, and they're all crazy, and they're not, they don't drive Priuses, and all that stuff will, makes them, it's great therapy for Democrats. And by the way, I agree with a lot of it about the House Republicans. I'm embarrassed. I, I used to work with the old House Republicans, the respectable conservatives. I have many friends there who trapped in it now. It's like they're in the Stalag. So I, I get all that. Not, not for long. Yeah, no, they're all getting squeezed out or they won't run again. They can't take it. But to make the midterm election about that, it's spy versus spy to do an old callback to Mad Magazine. Uh, it, what does that have to do with the price of cheese in Wisconsin? Most well, people, let me just finish, David. Okay. Most people look at D.C., they're not doing anything for me. And a whole lot of them, though. You know, yeah. at least with Trump, we were cracking down on the border. The economy was going good. We weren't getting pushed around by Russians. We weren't running from Afghanistan. And so for Biden to spend the election about, hey, the Republicans are pointy-eyed creeps, I would rather say, hey, here are three things that will improve your life that are reasonable and don't cost too much that the do-nothing Republicans won't pass. And, and, and put them in the equation, not this D.C. slappy fight stuff. No, I don't think that it should be all about that. I, I think it should be about what the next two years will be like and what we can't get done. Because you're saying campaign against the do-nothing House. Right now, the Republicans don't run the House. The Republicans were running the House in 1946 and 47, so Harry Truman could campaign against the incumbent House. People didn't need to draw a picture of what the House was like. Yeah, but the Republicans, like. but, but again, I, you know, I sat through all these focus groups where I made my TV show about the House. I was stunned how many people in the great American public confused the House and Senate. There are Republicans who say no to everything. And there's Biden who's trying to get these three things that people understand, which is not happening now. He's taken all his bumper stickers, put them together into a big gluey ball that nobody wants to touch. So pick three big things that people get, and the Republicans are against them. I'm for them. They're blocking them in Congress. I'm not. And just snowplow that. I get why that's appealing. I'm just telling you that <laughs> it, it's hard to see Biden 
running a sustained campaign where he consistently drives that message because that's just not who he is. Uh, no, no, I agree with that. That's the problem. I mean, the strategy would work. Look, the problem is Biden at every level. I think Biden's micromanaging this stuff, and I think a lot of it's on him. I don't think that you know those particular bills, the things that have to do with people's lives, yes, that's where Biden should be focused. Um, but right now, the other element of this is people feel like things are out of control. They are out of control, that, that we don't, that, that events are out of control. And so the idea that you're going to, like, create stability by electing this group, and I'd focus on the House uh, Republicans, by electing this group, that you're going to bring stability and productivity and we're going to make progress that way. I, I mean, I don't know the answer to this, Mike. But I wouldn't necessarily, the past isn't always prologue, okay? No, no, I, would, I agree with this that. Is, this but, is a unique period. If I were doing, if I were a consultant right now, I would be doing uh, uh, tons of focus groups around how to approach the critique of Republicans going into the fall in, and try and figure out a way to make them part of the equation. Uh, and I think this is, and I think there are several potential theories here. The problem with that and the race the Republicans like is the Democrats go out and say, look at Marjorie Taylor Greene, all these kooks. And the, the Republicans are happy to say, oh, yeah, look at AOC and all the lefty kooks that screwed Joe Biden. My point is Kevin McCarthy has basically laid out his agenda for the next two years. It's vengeance and retribution and more chaos. That is his prescription for the next two years. And People in a country that is already rattled by the sense of unsettlement, I wonder, especially these swing suburban voters, well, do we really want to go there? I mean, is that what we want? Sort of a house acting on Trump's orders to, to kind of... No, I totally know. get it. But do you think those voters think they've gotten stability from the Democratic House who've been fighting their own president? Where's the advantage? The question is, can, you know, will it be worse or better? I mean, I'm supposing that the, that Biden can right the ship to some degree, that he can pass some things and that the uh, economy will improve a little and that uh, the, the virus will be uh, improved and he'll get a clearer uh, path to, to tell that story. Uh, but I don't think that story alone is enough to win. And I think there has to be some threat on the other side in order to uh, keep people from just saying, you know what, I'm still not really satisfied with the way things are going. And I'm just going to cast my, my I'm going to cast a no vote by voting Republican just to let people know I'm not happy with the way things are going. Yeah, I, I just think the Democratic House has had a real problem and their underperformance last year, I think, is partial proof of that. Getting an identity that's not scary left wing identity, all that stuff. And so if Biden would triangulate against his, you know, kooky 20, it would help. Th then he would be the king of order. But we'll see. We'll see. They're, they're clearly reaching, trying to find something. Uh, and those suburbs are going to decide it, particularly in the Senate races, where you might have some semi-kooky Republican candidates, which if Biden can make it an actual choice, not a massive anti-Biden protest, by improving his numbers, that could be the path to hold the Senate. Do you guys think that the biggest liability that Biden has is that he's he's too left wing? Is that do you think that's what's because I don't No, I think it's a problem. Uh, I don't think it's his biggest liability. I think COVID and weakness narrative are. But yeah, yeah, I, I think the ideological uh, framing of the Democratic Party, this lurch to the left is a problem for Biden, who ran is exactly not in the election.
I think his biggest problem is that is that is that Americans are just in a sour mood because we're coming up on yes yes uh, yes on on year three of COVID and uh, it's just never ending and everything that goes with that is just sort of creating uh, to use a loaded word a sort of malaise um, uh, around the country. I, I think. Incidentally, Jim, or you can take your mask off. We're on Zoom here. You're alone in a room, so <laughs> go ahead. No, I mean, I'm just not sure that the horizon uh, looks any better until and unless there there is, you know, some clarity on on COVID, and I don't know when that's going to happen. Um, and, and obviously, nobody does. So I think uh, that that's Biden's biggest impediment. Um, also, I think. You know, Americans are fairly fickle, and, and the Americans that decide elections who sort of flip back and forth between the two parties, and obviously that's a smaller pool now than it used to be. You know, they're they're not super ideological. They they just want somebody that they believe has their best interest in mind. And to your guys' earlier point, when a lot of this sort of time and and capital being used is on stuff that is not related to addressing inflation and COVID that can create frustrations by said swing voters, you know? Yeah, where I think the perception of him being sort of whipsawed by his own base and uh, internal politics uh, hurts is less that, oh, we thought he was a moderate and he's really a liberal. I mean, in the precincts in which you travel, Mike, that may be a a theme that, that, but I have a feeling that those people were not likely Biden people but but beyond that, I, I think it what it does is it sets up a, an image of a guy who's not strong. And I think that, that it, it feeds the weakness narrative. And that that I think is the biggest, you know, I think people still like Joe Biden. CBS did a poll over the weekend and, you know, people basically said, yeah, we, we like him and we like him better than Donald Trump. But what comes through is sort of he hasn't solved the big problems in our lives here. He hasn't solved COVID. He hasn't solved the, the economic uh, crisis and uh, and we're frustrated and we're tired and that is uh, I think his greatest liability and to the totally. anything that anything that feeds the idea of a guy who is feckless of a guy who who doesn't have control of events hurts him and that includes being whipsawed by his own caucus. Look, because of polarization, he's never going to get much beyond fifty two percent. But also because of polarization, he's really never going to fall that far below 40. I know that there was a, a Quinnipiac poll at 33. Let's yes. put that aside for a minute. So what we're talking about here is basically, can Biden get from you know, 45, 46 back up to 51? And I think it's exactly those voters, David, that you're talking about who are not very ideological, who just want to get their sort of lives back in a better place that are the, the sort of key drivers behind that, those five crucial points in Biden's approval. Five points, by the way, that could decide who controls the U.S. Senate next year. Yes. Yeah, no, I think that is the key thing. I'll, I'll just interject. I think, you know, I'm a conservative, David, you're a progressive, so, you know, it's part of its worldview. But Biden, I think those marginal voters that swing back and forth, a lot of it is cultural. They're not watching Mitch McConnell. They don't know who Schumer is, whatever that might Mm -hmm. be. And Biden has to be careful of his progressive stripping Mm -hmm. culture tones that scare him away, which is why if you look at the congressional, you know, partisan ballot, 
white working class people aren't going Democratic. And that's a fundamental problem and a lot of its tone. They like Biden because he looked like a guy who could change a tire on his Corvette when he ran. And that Biden has vanished. And so part of its weakness, I think it's the House. I think it is some of the super woke to fund the cop stuff that comes out of the left wing of the uh, Democratic Party. And he's got to go triangulate his way back to connecting with those folks or he's not going to get there. But anyway, we, we've beaten this one to death. I don't think that conser- uh, that uh, the new conservatives or self-described conservatives of the Republican Party would describe you as a conservative, nor would the prog- progressive necessarily describe <laughs> yeah, me as a progressive. I'm, I'm glad you yeah. did, man. <laughs> oh, your credentials are intact, comrade. Now we're getting more. People don't like <laughs> it when I call you a comrade. We keep getting these angry reviews. But just, it's just sort of so, dated. But Well, it's fundamental. But anyway, point taken, I am yeah. a conservative. It's the populist knuckleheads who aren't. But uh, we're, we're moved forward. Okay, then let's take a break right here, and we'll be right back. Well, X, we have a great new sponsor, Athletic Greens, here joining the podcast. And I'll tell you, if you're like me, you know, I, I hate choking down big vitamin pills, but I do want better gut health, more energy, optimized immune system. Sure. And I just, you know, wanted, frankly, a supplement that actually tastes great and wanted to see what the Athletic Greens hype was all about. Well, I'll tell you what, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all of that. And in this day and age and our age, that's good news. And it's incredibly lifestyle-friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or cheeseburgers like you and me, you can just mix it right in. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. It also helps your sleep quality, recovery, supports mental clarity and alertness. It's one of the best things about Athletic Greens is it uses the best of the best products based on science. And God knows our listeners want us to show a little more mental clarity and alertness. And <laughs> the great thing is it costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. It's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. You know, Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. You can check it out. You can research it. You can, you can see what people say about it. It's been endorsed by professional athletes and trusted by leading health experts like Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash hacks. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hacks. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash hacks to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We have a lot to talk about with Trump. How's that for a transition? I liked it. I, I applaud that. Governor DeSantis took a poke at him, which was interesting. You know, of course, attacking him for being 
too uh, too strong on COVID protections, which is kind of Orwellian to begin with. But I, I see some significance in this. I think Trump is slowly fading, and I think one reason he is is his monomaniacal obsession. I mean, he's hit Captain Quig levels on this, that the election was stolen and all, all, the, all that. He is so monofocused on that. He, the people who are stuck in his hostage camp in the Republican Party used to say, well, yeah, he's horrible, but he wins. And the talented demagogue that they saw operate in 2016 is being replaced by this crazy guy in a bus spitting about the stolen elections and the mind control. And they're seeing Trump lose his fastball. So there are no shortage of folks scuttling around in the shadows of the Republican Party right now thinking even if Trump runs, is it worth going after him? They'll never say it publicly. But the fact DeSantis, who's in this very early, early moment, kind of the leading character there who actually shows up a little bit in national polling, is willing to go take a poke at him, is a tell, I think, that they sense an opportunity. Will it come true or not? A lot of miles yet to trod. But it's interesting, and I think it reinforces the trend. Jmart, who you wrote about this, who took a poke at who first? Wasn't it Trump? Didn't Trump go after DeSantis for not saying whether he had yeah. been so the vaccinated? The story on the the great Florida men scrap uh, is that the uh, fight for the villages. Uh, exactly, Florida may be big, but it's not big enough for the two ambitious Republicans. Um, huh. So what happened was that. DeSantis would not say in an interview if he had gotten the booster. And his answer was just kind of tortured. And he just didn't want to engage, obviously, because he didn't want to admit it. All he wants to talk about is, you know, he wants to criticize the mandates and the lockdowns. He doesn't want to actually engage on um, on on the actual efficacy of the vaccine and the booster. But that's something where Trump is actually like slightly to the left. Yeah, it's interesting. Of the extremes of his own party, because he's a proud papa, right? He's got paternity over Operation Warp Speed, over over the vaccine. Um, If we're being honest, it's probably his most significant accomplishment as president. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't like seeing somebody like DeSantis who won't uh, acknowledge uh, taking the booster. And so Trump doing his own separate interview, I believe it was on the One America News Network, which, of course, is, is Murphy's new home. Uh, um, uh, journalistico mega. So Trump says, I've seen some politicians who won't say if they've gotten the booster. That's gutless. Now he didn't say DeSantis's name, but everybody knew he was, who he was talking about. Right. Right. So this then prompts DeSantis on a podcast, uh, uh, the ruthless podcast last week that was taped down in Florida near St. Pete to say one of his biggest regrets as governor was to have not spoken out more forcefully about the, the sort of early Trump administration uh, lockdown. Uh, and so, you know, look, this is still somewhat of a scrimmage. This is not like a f- full pads, live contact, you know, 2016 primary where. No, no. Uh, but the decision to poke back is not a small thing. Because most not. of the pubs say, don't say a thing. He'll be on to something else tomorrow. And look, I think it speaks to the sort of broader frustration among younger uh, folks in the party, whether they're conservatives, moderates, or somewhere in between, that you know Trump won't exit stage right. That he is still hanging around, and his he he is still sort of you know hanging hanging over uh, in, in a big way, twenty twenty four, and he's not offering any clarity about his intentions, which obviously complicates life for said ambitious Republicans. You know, it strikes me that if Trump This is the first time I could say, you know, Trump is actually doing something 
here that is that could broaden his base. <laughs> you right. know, I mean, talking about the vaccines in the way uh, that he does, it's it's like a, uh, a you know a, a signal to people who are looking for a reason to say he's not completely stone cold nuts and uh, to to say, oh well, you know, he he is right on this vaccine thing he may have gotten there for the wrong reasons but if i were advising him and thinking i'm going to be a general election candidate someday i would think you know there's some value uh again someday there'll be there's some value in this the second question i have this let me interrupt you for one second david oan is now flashing obama advisor applauds trump move to the left on vax and shut down. So there. That's fine. If if they put up OAN, <laughs> if if OAN puts up that I'm applauding him for moving to the left, that's fine. I, I was going to say serious. DeSantis is sending a fruitcake to our offices. Yeah. Yes. Right now, current course and speed, Trump would be the nominee of the Republican Party today, in 2024. Yeah. Does DeSantis think that he can beat Trump in a primary, or or is he uh, claiming the base? If Trump doesn't run, is that a workable strategy? Well, I think DeSantis is making a fairly clever move for DeSantis, which is who knows what the future will bring. Hell, a meatloaf could kill Donald Trump. I mean, you, right. you can't predict right. the future. Two, I'm sitting in the biggest Republican base state in the country now, uh, arguably Texas, but Florida's a bigger general election question. And I'm governor, and I've got a platform. So why don't I open my store? I don't have to directly engage Trump, but I don't have to back down and shy away. I'm going to turn on the neon sign. I'm going to move around a little bit, and I'm going to see what happens. But if he runs and he's weakened, yeah, maybe I take him out. If he's all-powerful, I can easily pull this thing back. So he's staking a claim, and he's the guy at this very early stage holding the most cards because he's got the biggest financial and, and, and state base uh, of anybody else who might take on Trump. I mean, is that wrong, J. Mart, or do you guys disagree? That's no, I think Mike like is right. I think that I think that DeSantis is basically in wait and see mode here, and uh, would I think leap at the opportunity to to get into the twenty twenty four mix. But you know, wants to see what the next year brings. I think that's where a lot of these aspiring uh, Republicans are. Is it's not a sure thing Trump is gonna run, and if he does, and I want to be positioned to run, and also. If he does run, let's see what his numbers are, and let's see if he looks like a mortal at all in our primary. And if he does, maybe I'll get in. But I do think that there there's an itchiness um, in the in their ranks uh, about what Trump's going to do, and I think sort of you're seeing some of that now spill out with the uh on COVID and sort of what he said the other day. And per Mike's point before, Trump's pathological harping on. 2020 and you know the the big lie about the election how worried uh, are republicans about that becoming more and more dominant in the politics of 2022 because i'm sure that there are a bunch of people mitch mcconnell starting with mitch mcconnell saying this is death for us we don't want to be make the election of 2020 uh our theme because as i said before all he wants to do is talk about biden yeah look you asked most, they would answer, uh, like a lot of Democrats would have said 2020, which is, <laughs> we're happy with the Joe Biden basement strategy. Let's keep them there and just make this about Donald Trump. I think today they would say, uh, we're fine if, if Donald Trump wants to sort of stay on the 19th hole of, of Mar-a-Lago um, for the next year. That lets us make this more about Joe Biden. 
and the Democrats. Uh, obviously, that's going to happen. Trump is going to be out there talking about. Yeah, he doesn't like staying in the basement. It's not yeah, ideal. No, no, I he'll think, grab the spotlight. I think it's a big liability. But look, I, th- I think I think most Republicans want to talk about Joe Biden and Democrats and make this a referendum on the the here and now, the present. I think anything that sort of goes back to uh, 2020 and Trump's litigating the election is, in their eyes, a distraction. Uh, you know, to back to the point I made, I talked to somebody who's a lot softer on Trump than I am, who's smart in politics, and their take was, it is what I said earlier, Trump's losing his fastball. He's so obsessed with this. If he was on the trail talking China, ditching Kabul, weakness, you know, all that stuff, he could score for us. Instead, he just wants to let his head explode, babbling about a past election nobody understands, and it's a big problem. So this is not the same old election-winning Trump we used to have. He did have a, you know, he does have a scorching and misleading and some uh, critique of Biden uh, that he unleashed at his rally. It's just sandwiched between an hour and a half yeah, of fulminations therapy. about the election. So, and he's deplatformed. Trump does not swing the big stick where he would walk outside and sneeze, and we cut to live on all three ca- cable channels, flood Twitter. You know, he's working on a little tiny Mr. Microphone now compared to what he used to have, and that is a factor. Yeah, although, you know, I thought the Times had a really interesting story on that. The question is whether him being a little muted and just talking through the networks that reach his base, whether that actually has benefited him because swing voters are not hearing as much from him and they're not being reminded about what a what a nutball he can be. Maybe uh, among so. his ultimate grassroots primary voter world, but to be a factor in a general election, you got to be on the big stage, I think. It's Uh-oh, I think our fine engineer, Jeff Fox, is, is sending us a signal. Yeah, we just got the audio hook, but let's get on to some plugs here. If you have a question for the hacks, send it to us at hacksontap at gmail.com hacksontap at gmail.com and check out hacksontap.com our website with our fabulous merch we heard you beer mugs are coming but there's all kinds of fabulous high-end apparel there you can check it out amaze your friends and neighbors when you go to the bookstore to buy jmart's book you ought to be wearing one of our shirts so we get a little credit for that and finally check out the (laughs) hacks on tap newsletter twice a week it's free by email gibbs and i pontificate on a lot of stuff not just what we talk about here hacksontap.bulletin dot com hacks on tap dot bulletin dot com jonathan martin yes, a man named brian wrote in and said who would be best to draft as an independent to run for president in 2024 and take enough votes from trump to save us all is murphy available uh i'm conferring with my advisors you haven't seen the oppo obviously forming a <laughs> Uh, no, I want. I'm going to run in the primary just in New Hampshire and make a documentary about it called "Eliminate the Middleman." So stay tuned. <laughs> well, but what I mean, what about this? Because you hear this a lot, you know. Of course, I think that we're in such a polarized moment now, uh, in which people are voting mostly out of opposition to the other side. That there's just not a lot of um, uh, sort of. Uh, you know, bandwidth available for a third party candidate um, in large part, because if you support a third party candidate, you run the risk of doing what you want to do the least, which is helping the candidate that you want to lose the most. Um, right. You, you, I, you split I, the fire vote. Exactly. exactly. I would say uh, Admiral McRaven might be interesting. 
But I agree with what you your last point, Mike. Uh, generally, every time you poll this, you find that the uh, independent candidate uh, uh, hurts a Democrat more than the Republican. Um, I don't. Uh, I'm uh, not convinced that this is a, a very smart strategy uh, to beat Trump. Yeah, I mean, McRaven would take a hundred thousand votes probably in a place like like Arizona, and and that could be the floor, right? And that's probably enough to deny whoever the Democrat is, Joe Biden or anybody else, you know, the chance to win Arizona, right? Right, exactly. But he would cut into the Republican thing, too. It's The problem is, as you say, the election is often a referendum on the incumbent in a presidential, and it will be people who want to change. Will Anyway, it, there are a lot of ways to add it up, but it's not the miracle plan people think. For David Axelrod from SAM, Commentators routinely say Nancy Pelosi is one of the most effective speakers in history. Oh, I think Gibbs wrote this. But what I haven't heard is an explanation of how she convinces wavering members to cast tough votes on key legislation. What tools are at her disposal and how does she use them? Promises of campaign contribution, threats of a primary challenge. What does it take to deliver those votes? Yeah, listen, I've had a lot of experience with Nancy Pelosi when I was in the White House, uh, and I've watched her uh, work her magic. A lot of it is hard work and listening. She knows what is important to every member in her caucus, and she knows how to tinker with legislation uh, in order to uh, to accommodate uh, their needs. She also knows how to, you know, I asked her once on my uh, Axe Files podcast, uh, what did you learn from your father, who was a ward boss and mayor in Baltimore? She said, I learned how to count. And I learned that uh, I hear you isn't a yes. Uh-huh isn't a yes. Only yes is yes. Um, so she drives toward that yes, and she figures out what each person needs to get there. Um, I think it's less about threats and and, and more about uh, really understanding the integral needs of, of the people she's trying to persuade and accommodating them. You know, I remember when we have Steve Israel, our friend, a former member, Democratic leadership guy on the uh, podcast, he said, when you walk into her office, the first thing you see is a nice glass bowl full of Girardelli chocolates and a large baseball bat. And you kind of understand the meeting can go either way. And that's right. I mean, she's also tough and she's persistent. Uh, and if you cut your water off with her, there are implications to that in terms of your trajectory in that caucus. But she is. She will go down in history, uh, and not just because she's the first woman to be Speaker of the House. She will go down in history as one of the most effective uh, speakers uh, of the House, and she's done it in very difficult time. All right. So, Murphy, Catherine said, I watched 2016 unfold in horror as the Republican winner-take-all and primary calendar brought us Donald Trump. Has the party considered changing the primary system, at least the winner-take-all aspect? If not, can you help me understand why? And uh, are there good structural reasons for keeping it as is and as is is if you win a Republican primary, you get all the delegates in that state, even if you get a, a small plurality of the vote, and not a majority. So what say you? Tremendous question, Catherine. So most people don't know this, but the two systems work differently. You know, the Democrats are sweet. They all cried when Bambi died. So their theory is you come in fifth place, you still get some delegates. You had that great song. So their thing tends to go on forever. The Republicans are all mean social Darwinists. So if you lose by two votes, get out of town, loser, no delegates for you. Not every single Republican contest, but most are winner take all. 
So the old reason for it was it brings quick order. Our primaries don't go on for a long time. Whoever gets an early head of steam starts winning, wipes out the opponent, and consolidates. Nice, orderly, Republican way. Though I'm coming around to maybe a more proportional system to let the contest go on longer and pressure test the nominee a little more rather than let them win, you know, South Carolina, the few things before that, and then sweep the field and be done based on winner take all. The price you pay is messiness. You could have a messy convention. Uh, it can go on forever. But I think we could democratize with a small D, the Republican primary, a little more with a parcel proportional system to give whoever comes in second more of a fighting chance and to, to not have a, the steamroller effect we have now. All I know is I went, we went 50 rounds in 2008, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, and he won a pretty substantial victory uh, in the fall, partly because he was organizing in all those 50 states and that redounded to his benefit. But, um, you know, the proportional uh, uh, assignment of delegates is less orderly, does produce a longer fight at times, didn't in 2020 for Democrats, but uh, may produce a more of a consensus nominee. Yeah. I think it, it might be worth trying, but it is sure messy. All right, everybody, that's the episode. Remember to go out and buy Jonathan and Alex Burns' new book when it comes out in May. The title is... This Will Not Pass. Thanks, guys, for the plug. <laughs> yeah, the plug. Have multiple plugs. And wear your Hacks on Tap merch when you do it. Available on our beautiful store. <laughs> Thanks, fellas. All right. Thank All right, you, guys. guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.